You are talking about the nonsensical ravings of a lunatic mind. It's Manson Mitchell on the weekend with Gary Manson, Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to power up your day. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Thank you, Eric Crema. Hi, everybody. Happy Saturday to you, wherever you may be. I'm Gary Nance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. Together, we are Manson Mitchell in your ears for the hour. And today, we have yet another opportunity to work with our buddy, our producer, Nathan Miller, though we prefer to call him Nathan Detroit. Hey, Checking in with you, Nathan. How are you doing, my friend? I'm doing well, and it sounds like we might be a little bit underwater there, but all good now. Click the right button, and that's all fixed. Okay, good. (laughs) All those settings. It's a little glitchy week going on here. I've been experiencing weird glitches all throughout my week, and it just happens to still keep going on, I guess. And and hopefully we won't be a glitch for you as <laughs> as sometimes we are, but you know we we rebooted. We we've got all the updates for Zoom. We hope hey. that this will be a, a technically good show today. Yes, always good when everything works, right? Yes, absolutely. I have to say this is an unusual show for us, Suzanne. It is different. Yeah, and it's something that I wanted to collectively remember. Mm-hmm. Back in the summer of 19, it was August, August. of 1969, yep. the Tate-LaBianca murders happened and they shocked and shook the world. Mm-hmm. It was like, how could something like this happen? And as people considered it, it served as a kind of coda of the dark side of the 1960s. It wasn't all hippies, fun and good times and uh, mod dress and go-go's and the Beatles and the British invasion, et cetera, et cetera. There was an underside to it, and the underside turned murderously tragic in the case of the Manson family, infamous Manson family, and the Tate-LaBianca murders. So uh, a magnificent researcher who is a buddy well-known to Manson Mitchell listeners, Joey Medea, is with us today. We're going to get into that and spend an hour exploring what that was and and get the story behind the continuing fascination with that event as we near the end of the 60s. Right, right. continuing fascination is right. There have been quite a few uh, movies and accounts of it. Let me go ahead and bring Joey on. Joey Medea is now well into his second decade as an investigator, researcher, and experiencer of the paranormal. He was mentored by world-renowned author and TV personality Rosemary Ellen Guiley for nearly 10 years. When he's not investigating or writing about high strangeness, Joey is a screenwriter, playwright, novelist, actor, director, and escape room designer. He also has his own show. We will give out all the information about Joey at the bottom of the hour when we do the marketing piece. Welcome to Manson Mitchell. Once again, Joey Medea, good to have you with us today. Thank you. It is always so great to be here with you guys. When Gary thinks of these odd topics, which are not normal to Manson Mitchell's show, he says, we have to call Joey Medea. (laughs) (laughs) You're the odd topic guy. The dark, the dark matter master. <laughs> and and 
what you don't know, you will research. That's the great thing about Joey. He makes sure that he knows what he is talking about. Joey, I wanted to set the table for this discussion by telling you what happened in August of 1969 for, for my family as we visited our extended family in the Pittsburgh area. We lived in Southern California. I grew up about seven miles from Disneyland. So we were part of the Southern California culture in the 1960s and beyond. But in the case of August 1969, imagine this. We were getting ready. I was raised Catholic. So Sunday, that means we go to Mass. As we were heading down the driveway, piling the car, there there was the newspaper. And we thought, oh, we don't have time to read. We got to get to Mass. So we just set that aside. And off to Mass we went. During the sermon, the priest was asking for prayers for God's guidance. And he said, um, peace and, and, and God's wisdom are what we need at this time, especially in light of what just happened in California. And that was the only reference he made, what just happened in California. Well, you know, my family, we're looking, mom and dad were looking at each other like, what does this mean? And so uh, not having opened the newspaper, we completed our t- time at church and we went back to uh, the home where we were staying and opened the newspaper and oh my god the Tate LaBianca murders carried out by the infamous Manson family spearheaded though he wasn't physically present but done at the direction of Charles Manson and as we read about it and the story was still unfolding we were still lacking a lot of detail at that time But we thought, my God, for something like this to happen, doesn't it figure in a way with California being the epicenter of so much cultural shift and tumult at that time for something like this to happen? But this was on the far end of anybody's imagination. And we're going to get a lot more detail in the story behind all that from you, Joey. But I still remember experiencing that and the shock that came to us when we were on the opposite coast and wondering what have we come to, which was a question that was often heard back in those days. Yes, Suzanne. I had asked you if you were especially tuned into it because you were from California, and you said, yes. I mean, I was from California, and it was in the newspapers every day, and so you were very tuned into it. I was scratching my head and asking myself why I was so not tuned into it in the Chicago area. And then it kind of came to me like a ton of bricks. And that is that in the August of 1969, my parents were going through a very contentious divorce. And so we were high stress, high emotion, uh, family being split apart, uh, lots of you know, bad phone calls and fighting and and all kinds of things going on. During that time, I was hardly aware of what was going on with the Manson family at the time it was going on. And since then, I've read a little bit about it. We've seen some movies about it. And I've been shocked after the fact. But while it was going on, 
I was almost not aware of it. So I've learned more since then than at the time. And living in Southern California, I know we took a walk the other night and you asked me, did you talk much about it in Southern California? And I said, it was hard to find anybody who wasn't talking about it. And it's a story that in 2023 continues to unfold. Well, the movies have been almost regularly coming out about that. There is a fascination with those particular murders and that particular person. Joey, you had sent some uh, background information about the person and the family and the events. And I felt like I learned more from your notes than I did from anything. Although the movies certainly kept me intrigued and shocked. It was just interesting to even hear about his early life. And so for anybody who is not immersed in the whole Manson, Charles Manson family cult, I wanted you to, if if ever there was a case for this was a troubled child, this would be it. Tell us a, a little bit about what happened, how he grew up. Absolutely. And um, that kind of context is so important. So he grows up in 1934 is when he's born and he's born in Cincinnati. So just a couple hours from me, my wife was driving through Cincinnati a couple hours ago, as a matter of fact, and he was born to an alcoholic 16 year old mother and her name was Kathleen. When he was five years old, she was imprisoned for robbery. Now, they she had no idea who his father was. On his birth certificate, she named him No Name Maddox. Or that was her name, Kathleen Maddox. So Charles Manson was a name that he adopted. Uh, Kathleen got married down the road to a guy named Manson. But could you imagine? Um, now, I adopted a child where the father had denied paternity. So there was a blank space on my son's birth certificate. So I have the honor after the adoption of having my name there. But could you imagine just writing no name? Um, you say, well, you know, she was troubled. Well, she once traded him for a pitcher of beer. So this was his early life. Charles started as no name became Charles. Uh, she turned him over to social services when he was 12. Now, obviously, we have to go carefully here. Uh, my wife works in social services. I know tons of people who are in social service. I edit social work journals. The system is the system. The system is overloaded. We all know that. But Charlie spent a lot of his youth, most of his youth, in juvenile detention centers. He robbed cars. He, he, he robbed stores and convenience, you know, places like that. While he was in the juvenile center at 13 years old, he was sexually assaulted. This was a watershed moment for Charlie. Charlie, who had been um, who had been beaten up, who had been pushed down, now makes a decision to become the aggressor. So after the sexual assault, after the abandonment by mom, after going in and out of the system, he decides, okay, I am going to do this. Now, because of the sexual assault, that's what he focuses on. He focuses on the sexual power dynamic. He becomes a pimp. Um, he talks to pimps when he's in and out of the juvenile detention centers and then in the prison system. He's gathering data. This is a, an intelligent guy, 
a guy who, when he was in prison, dabbled in Scientology with all of its complexities. He read Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. So it's all what you do with the knowledge, with the material. So by the time he becomes an adult, he's been in the prison system more than half of his life. It has become his way of life. He has learned to operate within it. He doesn't like to be out of it. So in 1967, he's released and he's so accustomed to living within the system that he begs them to let him stay. They said, Charlie, your time's up. We're paroling you. You're out. And he says, please, can I stay? Um, I think he's that's 33 at that point, Joey. Yeah. If yeah. he was born in 34 in 1967, he was 33. And if he was uh, assaulted at 13, you're talking about 20 years, most of which were in prison. Yeah. Most of yeah. 20 years. In a, when you're saying in and out, I'm thinking that the times he was out were probably very brief and the times he was in were probably a lot longer. Right. If you think about- get out, Yeah, commit another crime and go right back in again. I was going to say recidivism, like uh, probably so many people love Shawshank Redemption. And that is an issue in that film. You go back in because you don't know how to be out. Right. Um, when he does finally then get out, it's 67. He's in California. He had spent time in Washington State. He had spent Ohio, West Virginia was like chapter one. Then chapter two was on the West Coast. And so he goes to San Francisco and it's hate Ashbury, man. And it's the summer of love and, and it's LSD and it's drugs and it's flower children. And he's watching these gurus in San Francisco manipulate these young kids who are, you know, getting in cars, listening to the mamas and papas and all of that kind of stuff. And, you know, are you going to San Francisco, wear some flowers in your hair? And he goes, I can do what they do. And that's how he generates the Manson family. So he wasn't at all stupid. Mm -mm. I mean, he was quite bright, not only to manipulate the system, but to manipulate people. It yeah. You know, he read Dale Carnegie's book. He dabbled in Scientology. Scientology has very deep psychological aspects. And we'll just leave that at that. Um, and no, far from highly, highly intelligent understood the system, under knew how to manipulate it, and was getting involved. You know, the CIA was in San Francisco at that time running these clinics and all. There have been some books that have come out about this kind of thing. And he took that intelligence. Now, I'll tell you, or as you two know, I've done a whole series on cults, on American cults yes. in the past six, eight mm -hmm. months. These people are highly intelligent, almost without fail. That's what allows them to construct the narrative mm, and to bring wow. the people to them. This cult of, per I don't know that a, a, an uneducated, unintelligent person can create a cult of personality. Mm. And that leads me to ask you, Joey, we know about Charlie Manson. We know some, even a lot in certain cases, but he attracted to himself a group of people that referred to themselves as a family. What was it that they found in Charlie Manson that would have attracted these people from various backgrounds, or maybe with some commonality of background, to this man who found them perfect marks for his manipulations? 
Right. So, right. Nature abhors, abhors a vacuum. So we have a country. I was nine months old at the time, but my father was in the United States Navy. Um, neither one of my grandfathers wanted him to wear his uniform to his wedding in 1967 in this year. They got married in September. So a month after this was happening. So that's what they were thinking about. So you have the whole Vietnam thing is escalating. We've, we've lost, um, we've lost JFK and we're going to lose Robert Kenny. I mean, the CIA has come to immense, immense power and the country is fracturing. Um, and we're still trying to unpack that to this day. And these kids like daddy is, is, you know, we didn't talk about right wing, left wing and all that, but daddy is conservative. And, and so the kids, there's this whole other way of life. Like I said, mamas and papas go to San Francisco, summer of love. So they're hitching and they get out there and they are these young girls, 16, 17, 18, 19 years old. And they're looking for a father figure. And he's providing not only this father figure thing, right? The head of the family, but he's also giving them the freedom. He's also manipulating them with drugs and and uh, group sex and all these different kinds of things. Plus, Charlie is an aspiring musician. So he's hip. He knows people. He knows the Beach Boys and he knows the Mamas and the Papas. He knows Terry Metzger, who was Darstay's son, big producer. And he um, worked all of that to his advantage. He He gave them a very sexy package. Wow. And what was it? I believe the gentleman's name was Terry Melcher, actually. Yes, Melcher. Yeah. And what was it that Charles Manson thought he was going to get from Mr. Melcher that was going to fulfill his big dream? Well, he thought he was going to get a record deal because he had met Dennis Wilson, right? Drummer for the Beach Boys. And Dennis really took a shine to him. Uh, the Beach Boys actually recorded one of his songs. Now they changed the lyrics substantially. They changed the title, but it was Charlie's music. And and Dennis introduced him to Terry. And Terry listened to his music. He gave him a shot and he just didn't like it. And some other people, you know, the mamas and the papas were split. Some of them wanted to record his music, some of them different. You know, there was something off about Charlie, right? We know his background. We know what's going on. Um, he hung out with Neil Young, and Neil Young is is very much an outsider, right? Neil Young is is very, very unique. And uh, he went to his Topang, uh, Topanga Canyon uh, house, and Neil declined to work with him. So Terry was, I think, getting all this information and ultimately decided not to record him, not to give him a contract. And like Hitler not getting into art school, we have this real fulcrum moment, fulcrum moment in someone's life. And Charlie takes a dark turn. He's angry. He's angry. He feels betrayed, misunderstood. Uh, and then he begins to formulate his plans. Joey, have you heard Charles Manson's music? Yeah. And, and and let me ask you, was the rejection, you think, more about the actual music or was the rejection about some kind of energy that they just didn't want to be around? Or was it was it both? It, I, I think that it I think that it was both. I mean, I'm a musician. I'm a writer. I'm a guitar player. I'm an artist. And you infuse your life and your energy into your music. I don't care for Charlie's music. 
uh, as I've been studying him with a lot of fascination the past 30 years, I've listened to his music. I don't care for it. And you're talking about the Beach Boys, the Mamas and the Papas, Neil Young. I mean, you're talking Laurel Canyon people. This is the top of the music business. This is it. So there's a ton of competition there, too. Um, and and Terry was very, very important producer. So it was a combination. And I don't think that it was unfair. I don't think it was unfair at all. So they listened to his music and some liked it, some didn't. Mm -hmm. But then when they met him, it was another element. And here's the guy who wrote the music. And then it was like, oh, I'm not sure I want to get involved with this guy. So it, yeah. it may have been a combination of the two things. It wasn't like the music was great and he was bad or the music was bad and he was he was really great personality. It was that there was something off about both of those things that that people picked up on. Is it is that fair? That is fair. That's absolutely accurate. Plus, he has this entourage, you know, this entourage who are who are prostituting, who are passing out drugs, these young girls, and and that was off putting to some of these people too. I mean, that was bad press at a at a at a very uh, tense time. I'm not, I wasn't even thinking about the entourage. I was thinking about him one-on-one -on -one with these other people, yeah. but I have known people who only move with an entourage. And then you are looking at everybody. You're not looking at just one individual. So if he's 33 and he's he's got uh, teenagers with him, who are prostitutes and doing drugs, I could see where bringing those folks into the room, you know, these are my friends, I'm here with my friends, that some people would go, ooh, I'm not sure I want to get involved with that. That's so, absolutely right. Yeah. Wow. Okay. That That's some insight I hadn't thought about. We have about five minutes before we take our break, Joey. Charles Manson, the family, and we're dealing with a lot of people here and a lot of personalities. Yeah. On the other side of this conversational ledger, what did you learn about Sharon Tate, about the people who were in the house on, I believe it was Cielo Drive yeah. that night? And then afterward, the the LaBianca couple. They are referred to as the Tate-LaBianca murders. Uh, Lino right. LaBianca, I believe, was a supermarket, uh, owned a supermarket chain. Or right. Either he owned it or he ran it there. So this was an upscale couple. Right. Two different households. Yeah, and two very different, two very different circumstances, but in both cases being at the wrong place in the wrong time. So we'll just tease this out and then we'll get into it. Manson devises this plan. Somehow he is going to be a superstar. So if he can't do it in the music business, he's got an alternative plan. In order to get that plan kicked, he has to stage horrific murders. So Cielo Drive, who used to live there? Terry. Terry Meltzer used to live there. So um, <clears throat> that's part of the theory. It was a way to send a message and scare Terry. We know where you lived, and this is what happened. Now, I, I understand we're going to talk about Quentin Tarantino's movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. In that, Manson shows up at the house prior. It's the only time we see Manson in the movie, and he's trying to give his tape to Terry Metz, uh, Meltzer. And that was just, um, you know, Quentin Tarantino sort of, planting that seed for us. 
the the La, La Biancas, it was random. They saw the lights on. They knew they needed to go into an upscale neighborhood. Why? Because the the Tate murders, horrific as they were, were not getting enough media fast enough. Charge so Charlie sent out Tex Watson, who we'll talk about, because Tex Watson is is a catalyst in this whole thing is very important Tex Watson. But anyway, he says, make it look witchy, you know? So that's when he writes, you know, war and all that. So that is shocking to me. The lights happen to be on. So that's where they stopped. That was the house where Terry lived, you know, so they didn't target Sharon Tate. I don't know. Some people maybe thought they, they did because, you know, she had a movie career and she was married to the, Famous director, Rosemary's Baby, Roman Polanski, right? But in a sense, it was random as far as those people who died. And those were two different sets of murders on two different nights at two different homes. Yes, and, and back to back. Yeah. Back to back. And so then that it was the second murder that finally got him the attention that he was looking for. Yes. It was, yeah. it was beginning to look like serial killings or something else or, you know, cult activity. Yeah. Wow. Yep. But he believed that he was called upon thinking, as I recall, that he had received a message from the Beatles song, Helter Skelter. They're encouraging him or inspiring him to provoke a race war. Yeah. And somehow White Charles Album. Manson thought this was his to do. Yeah, it was the whole White Album. There were several songs that they employed. Yeah, uh, which was horrific for the Beatles, especially for oh, George yes. Harrison. Oh, God, you know, yes. Piggies. He wrote that song, Piggies, and that that was about fighting the power, fighting the establishment. And George Harrison regretted that. Um, Blackbird, right? Paul Blackbird singing in the dead of night. Um, Manson thought that was the call out to the African-American population. Um, his plan was simply make it look like African-Americans had slaughtered these people because they were rich, because they were affluent. And then a race war would spark up. But Manson was convinced that the African-Americans would win, but they didn't have the intelligence to lead themselves in the next phase. So he would emerge from Spawn Ranch from their from their home there, um, an old movie ranch, and he would take over. That was the master plan. Sinister and sick. Wow. And it continues to shock, even in 2023, shock and mystify. It, it's a whole study unto itself about the darkness of the human mind. Let's go ahead and take our break. We'll be back. We're talking with Joey Medea about Charles Manson, the Manson family, and the horrifying Tate LaBianca murders back in August of 1969. Give us a couple of minutes and we'll pick up the conversation on the other side. We're Manson Mitchell. Thank you and stay tuned. Hi, everybody. This is Anson Williams from Happy Days, and I'm so excited to tell you about American Road. It is the best car travel magazine in the world. They have the most fantastic adventures detailed in each magazine with all your itinerary. We could just jump in the car with your family and have the most fabulous adventures you've ever had in your life. Please get a copy of American Road and start your own adventure. 
staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to manceandmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash Mitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world-famed, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is manceandmitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 AM or streaming live from your computer anywhere. Terry Loving wants to help you with your online marketing challenges right now. She has several courses she is giving away to help you get your business working for you online. Yes, giving away. WordPress websites are her specialty, yet her technical skills go way beyond that. Check out her blog at terryloving.com or email her directly at terry at terryloving.com. That's terry at terryloving.com. On Friday, Manson Mitchell welcomed back Garnet Schulhauser from Victoria, B.C. in this encore presentation about metaphysical spirituality from earlier this year. On Saturday, Mary Beckman returns from her new home in Pennsylvania to give us her perspective on the state of healing ourselves individually, as a collective, and as a species. Bringing you mastery and mystery since 2007. We are Manson Mitchell, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on Alternative Talk, AM 1150. Talk radio with a purpose. Alternative Talk 1150. Welcome back to Manson Mitchell and our guest this hour, Joey Medea. Always a joy to have Joey on with us. A great researcher and always a very different conversation, which we like to have once in a while peppered through our show. Joey, if people want to learn more about you, you have such a tremendous wide variety of things that you do. Um, where is the best place for people to look up information about you or connect with you? Yeah, if you go to any of the major social media platforms, all of them, I'm there, just J-O-E-Y-M-A-D-I-A. If you're interested in my books, fiction and nonfiction, I have an author page at Amazon.com. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you. Gary? Why is this? Why are we talking about that this year? There's such a a roster here. And thanks to Joey's excellent research, we have it in digest form. Uh, I look, for example, at names. These are names that come up in conversation among people who want to understand what happened and who were the people that made this happen. They include Tex Watson, who's still in prison. Susan Atkins died in prison in 2009 from brain cancer. Linda Kasabian died in January of this year. Leslie Van Houten, and to millions of people, these are familiar names. She was paroled in last month, July 2023, after 53 years in prison, very controversially. Patricia Krenwinkel granted parole May 2022. She was denied 10 times beforehand. These are the people that we continue to talk about with a horrified fascination, Joey. Yeah, we do. And I, and I think rightfully so, because it's this whole cult of personality. That's what's really important. That's why I did this whole series on these cult leaders, because they're, we see examples of it in different ways throughout all the major pillars 
of society, right? And and I want to go gently and I, I want to stay focused on what we're doing. But it was this idea, there were there were several things that were interesting. There was a guy named Bobby Musil, and I believe that he is still in prison too. He's he's fairly advanced in age. And Tex Watson. These are dark murderous personalities. They are not in this for love and guruism. And I'm sure they were benefiting from some some of the other things that were going on at the Spawn Ranch with the with the Manson family. But these were these were dark sociopathic people. So there's that. Then you have all these girls, and, and when you advertised, you you had a picture of them from the courtroom. These are fresh-faced girl next door type girls. That must have scared the be Jesus out of society that these girls did this horrific stuff. We don't have to go into detail, but the stabbings, uh, Sharon Tate was about to have her baby almost any time. She was eight months pregnant, um, tied to ex-boyfriend Jay Subring, who was a hairdresser. They were tied up together and he was begging for her life. And first they, you know, first texted him in with a knife and then they turned to Sharon. So there's a massive disconnect there. We're looking at the summer of love, right? Are you going to San Francisco? Wear flowers in your flowing white robes and, you know, guitar music and folk music and all. And you have this utter darkness. So when these kind of things happen in society, it throws throws you for a loop. So I think that that's part of the reason why it's enduring. Also, too, Charlie was not there. He didn't commit any of the murders. He was involved with the murder of another guy that Bobby Busilil is in in prison for, uh, Gary Hinman, that they simply wanted money from. Gary was a musician. He was a friend of the family. He came into $20,000 through an inheritance. Uh, they kidnapped him. They tried to get his money. Uh, Susan Atkins was there, interestingly enough. So she got a little practice, uh, who they called Sadie. Uh, Manson comes in with either a bayonet. I've read somewhere that it was a Nazi bayonet, but I've also heard it was a samurai sword. Nobody seems to know for sure, uh, because the lore got out, you know, so, so take your, take your pick, uh, cut off the guy's ear. They sewed it back on with dental floss and then tortured him for three days before they killed him. So these were stone cold killers. And, you know, Sadie Atkins was was part of that first one. So you have that disconnect. You have the real sociopathic darkness of Tex Watson and Bobby Busilil. Then you have Charlie, this cult of personality, who directed the murders, made the instructions, said make them witchy. Um, and he winds up going to prison. So so that was that was odd too. Right. So those are all the ingredients why I think this endures. And, you know, Leslie Van Houten, do you rot in prison or do you finish out your life? I, I mean, I, I don't feel qualified to, to even make a judgment on that. I don't know what your your thoughts were when you found out she had finally been paroled. I was against it. These are they got their break when there was a moratorium right thanks to the supreme court yep. on the death penalty they were all yeah. sentenced to death i was going to say that yeah all sentenced to death wow yeah and that would have been more just no question no question at all so so that's that's why it endures that's why it's important that's why 
you know, I, I, as a writer and an actor, I am hyper-focused on the strikes. I am hyper-focused on AI and what I'm seeing AI used for, um, especially for images, but also for writing, for coding, and so on and so forth. Is that going to be our new cult of personality? Are we going to ask our advice? I, I, I think that we can learn from these things. I think we can learn how if there's something missing in our life, something is going to come in and fill it. And we have to be careful. We have to be careful who we gra uh, gravitate to, who are our heroes, right? Um, this country is in a political, our sitting president, our past president, recent past president, um, all this criminal talk, criminal talk. And yet these are the leaders of our country. So I think that's why this matters because it's all degrees. It's all degrees of influence, right? I'm interested in how many times this story has been told because there are some stories like, uh, you know, like a, a Christmas Carol, Charles Dickens story. It's been told, you know, 50 or 100 or 1,000 times. This story has been told multiple times starting in 1976 uh, based on a book not that far after the movie after the event helter skelter in 76 manson in 73 and then there's a, a you know a list of things where it has been revisited and revisited um you were saying something funny on the break about once upon a time in hollywood <laughs> i said remember what you said so you could say it again yeah, so I'm a huge fan of Quentin Tarantino. Uh, I love his movies. I spent last weekend with my son watching the Kill Bill movies for the first time. And um, oh my so, gosh, <laughs> yeah, which I don't know that I would watch again. That 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 was rough. I watched those to say that I watched. You know yeah. that I've I've watched Quentin's body of work. So anyway, but the but the actors and and I, I to tell you the truth. I was very busy in the lead up, didn't see it in the theaters, you know, was watching it at home, you know, pay-per-view or Amazon or something like that, and uh, went in cold. I went in cold. So, okay, so it's the, you know, the transition from Hollywood, the old shows were going away, the old stars were going away, the studio system is changing, and suddenly we see Sharon Tate, right, played by the beautiful and capable Margot Robbie, and I'm going... What is this? Like, this is gonna, this is gonna bring in Manson. We see him just for 30 seconds. He's at Melcher's house. And I, I don't know why my brain was, was, was freezing on that in the first half of the show, but Terry Melcher, um, that he's trying to give him the tape at, uh, Cello Drive there. Uh, and Tarantino fabricated that. Just to let us know, hey, there's a connection between the two. But for those who haven't seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I don't want to spoil it for you, but it is an alternative history. I will say that uh, Tate and company make it through the night. And he doesn't even, you know, they never even get to the LaBiancas um, because of what happens in the movie. And I was astonished as I was watching it unfold. But then I remembered, uh, you know, Inglorious Bastards where they kill Hitler. So Quentin Tarantino likes to play with alternate history. He likes to tell a fairy tale once upon a time in right. Hollywood. If right. I was God, says Quentin Tarantino, as he often does, um, here's how it would have been. 
these antiquated Hollywood stars would have saved the new breed of stars and we would have had something different. So it's well worth checking out as our um, Charlie says with a uh, mild mannered Matt Smith as a stunning rendition of Charles Manson, highly, highly recommended Matt Smith, right? The doctor uh, after David Tennant um, and so many other great roles. I saw Aquarius mm -hmm. and that was a TV series over several nights. And I found that to be hugely disturbing. Yeah. Um, just, just watching that. I mean, I, I think I, I generally don't like, you know, horror and violence and stuff like that. But as long as Gary is holding my hand, I, I get through some of it. And, uh, and so we watched that together. And um, I, I don't know, sometimes things just get so violent and so disturbing. It, it's hard to, to grok it, you know? Yeah. And, and, and I watched Aquarius, right. It was David Duchovny, you know, uh, and, and it really was a great tapestry of this time period. At times I felt like the guy was trying to do too much, right. Cause it was the black Panthers and it was this and that, and it went back to Charlie and all of that. Um, uh, mine Hunter too, which was a Netflix series. Um, they went to see Manson in prison. I've read his book, Manson in his own words. It is a chilling it is a chilling read. It's in the mind of madmen. I have a whole shelf here of serial killer books because serial killers are also important to the American zeitgeist. You know, it's a almost a uniquely American thing, and it happens every now and again. Um, is it is it chilling because he has no remorse? I, I've I've heard a couple times um, on TV uh, on the news where they'll say this person in court had no remorse about what they had done. Is, is that what you get from reading stuff in the, in the uh, killer's own words and the cult follower leader's own words? Is that they, they don't, they they don't look for any forgiveness or, you know, they don't really care what they're doing. Is it a lack of emotion or, it's it's socio it's sociopathic slash psychopathic yeah. behavior. Um, remember that in the courtroom, it was that uh, non-accused uh, members of the Manson family showed up, and many of them were bodily removed from the court. It was very much a circus. Um, it was very much like the trial of the Chicago Eight. <laughs> also, you know, around that time, that was just. That was the zeitgeist, right? There were people who identified with them. So they carved these X's in their foreheads, which Charlie later turned his into a swastika and at some point got it tattooed and, and nobody knows exactly when he made it permanent. Um, but because they were literally X'd out of society, that was their feeling. We are victims. We are outsiders. You don't get us. You don't understand us. You're not hip enough. You're not cool enough. You're not smart enough. And I think that was Charlie's aloofness. Like if you read his words, if you watch interviews with him, it's very much, I am so much smarter than you guys, which is very much a serial killer, which is a serial killer kind of thing. Yeah. You have to wonder if some of the Manson family didn't turn on each other, um, one got arrested for something not related and talked to someone else in prison. Uh, Baglosi's book, as time has gone on, has become more, um, he was the prosecutor 
So he wrote the book Helter Skelter um, that you were talking about, Suzanne, from 1976 that they made a movie from. Um, some of the way the evidence was presented and all. Uh, there's there's so much complexity in all of it. But through it all, here's Charlie and his minions, which is why they're either still in jail or died in jail or it took forever to be paroled. Um did not belong in society. Felt like they had been next out of society. Uh, those are not people you want reintegrated. But I think if they had been caught, they probably would have continued this. It, it it would have been horrific until Charlie got what he wanted or he was absolutely stopped. So, But what he, what he wanted was to be like great guitar player. That, that fulcrum point that you talked about. He never he never really got what he wanted. No, a little bit in prison. You know, his music came out and um there were some people who, because it's Charlie Manson's music, just like people buy art from serial killers because they're serial killers. Uh I he wanted the big uh, it's hard to get into the mind of a madman, right? Right. Um and dangerous dangerous to do so for you and 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 for the story but um i think he got a taste of what he wanted but he wanted more he was always willing to talk to the cameras he's always willing to do interviews but he wanted to be the messiah he uh-huh. wanted to be the messiah of this big african-american rise up and that did not happen the society that had had cast out these people, right? Keep in mind that you got Sadie and you got Gypsy and you got Squeaky and you got Tex. These nicknames were new identities. These nicknames allowed them to say, like, and what was Charlie's nickname? No name. No name. I didn't even have a name when he was born on his birth certificate. So I think that that played out where here you're assigned, right? It's Animal House. You're name is flounder your name is when you're undergoing those pseudonym names that allows you to do things out of society and i think that's a big part of it too and squeaky is squeaky from sometimes yeah. pronounced from who attempted to assassinate president ford yeah the, these people whatever these people were about they were attempted not just to make a name for themselves but to achieve a perverted kind of glory they were going to go big rather than yeah. go home. Yeah, because because if you don't fit in society, if the system has worked against you your whole life, and I think for some of these girls who fled and went to California, um, the, the parental system, the family system uh, failed them, the political system, the school system in their, you know, in their worldview. Um, so... <clears throat> If you can't fit in, you seek to destroy it, right? I think that's what happens in some of the cases with school shootings. This is a system that has failed me. This is a system that has demonized me, that has made me an outsider, that has X'd me out, that has made me feel horrible. So I am going to dismantle it. I am going to disrupt it. I am going to bring it down. Um I think that's why this stuff is that's, really um, important. That, that's an interesting observation, Joey, um, because the, the, all these school shootings, you know, they should bother any normal person. Yes. And it bothers me greatly that all these children are being killed. But you you come at it with an interesting idea 
that if if I can't fit in, I'm just going to destroy it. Because there, there, there is the other part of creation, destruction and creation. You, you hope things will be created better than what they were. We're hoping Maui's going to be created better than what it was, but this is a period of pure destruction for Maui having been burned to the ground. So when you're talking about, you know, I'm, I'm going to go take out the school, take out the kids, the, the teachers, you know, do all that stuff, that, that kind of makes sense to me. That, that they're saying, if I don't fit in, none of it gets to exist. That's pretty extreme. Well, well it is. And, and I think terrorists operate in that way. Um, you know, 9-11, those buildings were the symbol of Western capitalism, Western financial. Uh, right. So these things are targeted. That's why it becomes really... They're different shades of, I think, the same mechanism. Now, look, I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a criminal psychologist. I guess we have to do a disclaimer, even though the radio show, you know, does a blanket disclaimer at the start. Um, but through my research, looking at the patterns of these kinds of people, um, they want very rarely are they cults, right? Millennial cults. We're going to we're going to destroy this and we're going to go on to something different. We're going to do this. We're we're going to be armed. We're going to be disruptive. Um, yeah, I I'm pretty confident in that to say it. Mm. The word that comes to mind for me is megalomania. You okay. give people some power, it can be put to a good use if they are wise, if they are judicious. But there are people who love power for its own sake. They love to see how much of it they can hold over their fellow human beings. And when I think of Charles Manson, I think of him as a unique example of that very thing. He wanted glory, and he wasn't too concerned about the price, the toll it would take on others. It was all about him. Well, it was. And, and I, you know... I try to, it's my nature as a storyteller that we have to look at, at everything. I do come back to a guy that on his birth certificate says no name that was traded for a pitcher of beer. Um, it's interesting. No one ever intervened. No one ever intervened. Yes. Yeah. And the system is overburdened. And, you know, we yeah. always hear about, Oh, how did they not know the serial killer? He had a history of this. And how did they not know about the school shooter? He had a history of this. So all the social workers out there, all the law enforcement out there, all the people who are trying to manage this system, there's 350 million people in this country and the, and the systems are absolutely overwhelmed. But I yeah. don't think it negates the fact that there are clues. There are signs. When Manson was a kid, and I didn't have this in the notes, I, I found this out he would direct other kids to beat kids up. He was practicing. He was rehearsing. He was refining on the schoolyard or in the juvenile detention yard. He was rehearsing his mastery over other people, trying to, to bridge that gap, to balance the scales of he really felt like he got screwed and people who feel that way. That society owes them. Those are dangerous people. 
Hmm. And in the case of Manson, he was particularly skilled in getting other people to do his bidding. He could claim, I wasn't there. I don't know. There, and he would be very exercised there. If you see him interviewed, some of those jailhouse interviews there, he managed to, to put any interviewer into a near tailspin, just trying to nail him down to get straight answers to straight questions. You see him playing these journalists, these broadcasters, and that was his game. He was quite practiced and he'd been doing it for decades. Yeah. Well, I, I was watching an interview um, that, uh, oh, is an old interviewer from the 1970s, Gary, someone. And he had, um, he had Johnny Rotten. Uh, yeah, he had Johnny Rotten on. And it was the same kind of, uh, I am going to dismantle your questions. I am going to make you look foolish. I am going to make your values seem absolutely worthless and misdirected. And it was a painful interview. Like the interviewer said, and I apologize. I, it was three o'clock this morning. I couldn't sleep. So I was watching this interview. Um, he said, this is, this is the most interesting and challenging issue. In, and, and you see guys like, uh, Billy Joe Armstrong from, uh, from, uh, America, from Green Day. And you see some of these other people. Bob Dylan did it, right? He, he was an outsider that constructed a her personality for himself. Uh, David Bowie had lots and lots of characters and incarnations. They were a nightmare for interviewers. You know, you guys can appreciate that as interviewers. I hope you've never had a guest that just came on and tried to dismantle rather than answer your questions. So <clears throat> that was that was Manson's game, but I think it was Tex Watson. Tex did it for the blood. He did it for the power. He did it for the and and Charlie had him to do that. And I, my understanding is Tex was sort of the field lieutenant. If Manson was the general, okay, here's the big plan, man. Make it look witchy. Choose a house in L.A., in a very rich neighborhood, and make it look witchy. Um, that was the direction. Then it was Watson. Some things that I've read say the girls didn't even know where they were headed and what they were up to that that first night. When they were going to the, you know, to where Tate and Sabrina were on Chalo Drive, um, so we're I think we're going to have to leave it there, well. Joey. Oh, okay. All we right. Are, to we, the very have, end. we have fulfilled our hour and and then okay. some with interesting information. Thank you so much for being with us today. Always a pleasure. Thanks, guys. We'll we'll find another strange topic and give you a call again. <laughs> Joey Medea never fails to intrigue. Thank you, Joey. You're welcome. Find reasons to celebrate life, to honor life, and your own life. And join us next Friday. Here's what's coming up next week on Manson Mitchell. On Friday, Manson Mitchell welcomed back Garnet Schulhauser from Victoria, B.C. in this encore presentation about metaphysical spirituality from earlier this year. On Saturday, Mary Beckman returns from her new home in Pennsylvania to give us her perspective on the state of healing ourselves individually, as a collective, and as a species. Bringing you mastery and mystery since 2007. We are Manson Mitchell, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on Alternative Talk AM 1150.